Uh, any children who are here, it is time for you to meet with the uh, Sunday school folks, so you are dismissed. And uh, I want to add my welcome this morning to any of you who might be visiting, whether you're here temporarily or you're back visiting, whatever the case may be. Uh, you know, as a resident of the great San Joaquin Valley, I haven't figured out why anybody would have to leave here to go on vacation and enjoy the beauty of God's creation anyway. <laughs> But his blessings are new every morning, regardless of where you are. So it's great to have all of you here with us this morning. It's been four months now since we started our trek through the book of Acts. And I can't believe tomorrow is the 1st of August already. Can you? you know, say, they say time or just flies when you're having fun. Well, I'm, I'm having a great time. I hope you all are too. Last week we spoke about great reversals. And we spoke specifically about the reversal that Saul of Tarsus experienced in his life and, uh, and how great a reversal that was where he was confronted by the Lord Jesus himself and he became a believer on that road to Damascus and went from being the great persecutor to the Apostle Paul. So today we're going to look at uh, a little bit of his life after his conversion and uh, I think I called this reverberations. Reverberations, aftershocks is a word I suppose that we in California would be a little bit more familiar with. There were a few of them in Paul's life. In fact, we're still feeling the aftershocks and the reverberations of his conversion even today. So if you want to turn to uh, the book of Acts chapter 9, we'll be starting at verse 10. There's a a lot of biblical history in the New Testament that's, that's written between the lines especially pertaining to Apostle Paul. And we know a number of years passed between the time of his conversion and when his ministry actually got its rolling start. And that's not, that's not an uncommon thing where Scripture is concerned and as far as God is concerned. Uh, he tends to take some time doing a necessary work of preparation uh, to get those who he wants to minister and work in his name prepared to do what it is he's called them to do. And probably if we look back in retrospect, most of us can see that. I can sure see it in my life, uh, how he prepared me to do what he called me to do. And um, it's just one of those things that you get to know about our Lord, is that he, he prepares the call, the called, and then he calls them to work. And that's what he did with Paul. And he did a work of preparation in Paul's life that couldn't happen overnight. It took some time. But he did something in Paul's life that only God could do. He took the the church's worst enemy at the time and created the church's greatest champion. The entire story of, of Paul's conversion is like something maybe from a Hollywood script in our day. Something that only happens to other people. Uh, maybe in the movies or in the Bible. It was dramatic. And most of us, I would guess, were not converted by an incredibly bright light and, and a voice coming out of the heavens. Either that or I need to hear more of your personal testimonies. Uh, but following our conversions, most of us probably haven't gone about changing the world uh, with the things that we say or the things that we write. But Paul's experience was not 
a Hollywood script. It was a real event that took place on a specific day in history. And if you had been on that Damascus road that day, you might have seen Saul looking up into heaven, and you might have seen him talking to someone you couldn't see. And if you could see the incredible changes that took place in his life, you yourself might be irreversibly assured that what happened to him was in fact completely real. In fact, what happened to Saul was so real that it has sent, as I said, ripples and echoes and aftershocks and reverberations throughout the Middle East, from Damascus all the way back to Jerusalem, and even to Cambria, California today. So if you want to follow along, we're going to start at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief of priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Today we're going to look at Paul, we're going to start by looking at the affirmation or affirming Paul's conversion. 
God used a, a resident of Damascus, a man named Ananias, not the same one, obviously, that we met a little earlier, to affirm that it was, in fact, the one and only fearsome Saul from Tarsus who had been converted to Christianity on that Damascus road. Verse 10 says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Remember the two questions we ended with last week? Who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? And here I am, Lord, is kind of Ananias' way of saying, What do you want me to do? It was God's plan to use Ananias to help Saul through that post-conversion blindness that he experienced out on the road. And we don't know much about Ananias, either before or after he met the church's great persecutor. But from Paul's own testimony in Acts chapter 22, verse 12, we do know this, that Ananias was, quote, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. So Ananias was apparently a devout Jew who had been converted to Christ and probably was one that Paul was on his way to Damascus to persecute. We see also then the command given to Ananias. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the home of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias received a command from God to go to the house where Saul was staying and to lay hands on him so that his sight might be restored. And scripture says that he might receive the Holy Spirit. But that was the act of God, not the act of Ananias. And both men had visions from the Lord that that fit together perfectly. Saul was praying at the home of a guy named Judas. And he saw in a vision a man named Ananias that was going to come and lay hands on him. At the same time, Ananias also had a vision instructing him to go and do what Saul had seen in his vision. And God often used visions during this transitional period, if you will, of his work on earth. But today, God predominantly uses the Bible and the Holy Spirit to guide his people. That's not to say he can't use visions, because he, he can and does. But predominantly... He uses this and the Holy Spirit to guide us. Then we see a a concern that Ananias communicated back to the Lord. He answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief of priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Clearly Ananias was a little leery about this command to go and minister to this guy named Saul of Tarsus because he, he knew Saul's reputation. Saul had been an enemy of God and his people. In verses 13 and 14 we see the expression of concern that Ananias makes here. Even though Saul was blind and helpless, when he got to Damascus, 
the word spread throughout town that he had come with a letter of authorization to round up the Jews who believed in Jesus, who believed in the resurrection. This is a new religion, a bunch of blasphemers as far as Saul was concerned on his way there. Ananias' response was a lot like that of Jonah in the Old Testament when God sent him to preach to those wicked Ninevites. Remember that? You remember Job's response? Why should I help those who are your enemies? <laughs> and that's kind of what Ananias was saying here. But it's interesting, the explanation of his concern. It's interesting to me that the Lord did not rebuke Ananias for his concern. He simply explained the reasons for calling Saul into his service. Verse 15 tells us Saul was chosen to serve Jesus Christ. He was called by God to carry the gospel to the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. He was God's chosen instrument. That's a wonderful metaphor. And it applies, though, to every believer. Everyone in this room who is a believer is a chosen instrument. And you, it, it, it's critical that we keep that in mind. Because God has a purpose for each of his chosen instruments. He's made us from clay and filled us with his Holy Spirit for his service. Then verse 16 tells us Saul was chosen to suffer for Jesus. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And we know from scripture that he did indeed suffer for Christ. Beginning almost immediately as he recalled how he had persecuted the Lord's children. But he suffered in a lot of other ways too. In 2 Corinthians, where Paul defends his apostleship, he lists the many hardships that he's endured for the, the sake of Christ, including beatings, shipwrecks, hunger, cold, stonings, all kinds of other dangers on his travels in obedience to his call from God. And when Ananias voiced his concerns about ministering to the man who caused so much suffering among the saints in Jerusalem, God pointed out that Saul was also destined to experience his own share of suffering. But Saul's future suffering, understand, was not a payback for what he had done to the early believers. God chose Saul because he knew it was going to take someone with Saul's zeal and his commitment to withstand what was ahead of him. In fact, it was ahead of anyone who was identifying with Jesus. Then we come to some of those aftershocks of Saul's conversions. Imagine the headlines in the newspaper back in Jerusalem or even in Damascus. In Damascus. Saul of Tarsus converts to Christianity. Oh, people were looking at that. Don't believe everything you read, right? It's here, after Ananias visits Saul, that action kind of picks up in Saul's life. First, he finds himself with a new friend. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Of course, that, that first old enemy who becomes a new friend is Ananias. 
as he lays hands on Saul and prays for him to receive his sight back. And, of course, the Lord restored his sight. Now, it was probably kind of strange, maybe even uncomfortable, for Saul to hear himself referred to as Brother Saul by Ananias and to know now that he was a a fellow Christian, a brother in Christ. It was likely just as disorienting to hear the words from Ananias, the Lord Jesus has sent me. And this is only the beginning of enemies becoming friends. In Acts 22, verses 14 to 16, we see a little bit more of Ananias' conversation with Saul. It says, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now we see Saul gaining a new family. (laughs) Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Saul regained his sight immediately when Ananias laid hands on him. And then it says he was immediately baptized. And we've noted before that baptism always follows conversion to Christ, to belief. And baptism was a huge step for Saul as a Jew. Even today, when a person of the Jewish faith converts to Christianity, that might be tolerated, as long as they're not baptized. But baptism is a serious step. In many cases, if the Jew today is is converted to Christianity, then they are disowned. And that's true in other faiths too. Obviously, in, uh, in the Muslim faith, uh, you become marked. <laughs> so, his conversion was a serious thing in his life. But he was immediately obedient in baptism. And it was a demonstration of his wholehearted commitment now to this faith. See, baptism is a public statement. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and I will worship him all of my life. Baptism in the early church was done very publicly, more so than they are today. Not to say that, that our baptisms are hidden away, they aren't, but they're done primarily in front of our own body and family in the local church. But there they were done in front of the community, much sometimes to their danger. Even in Eastern Europe, where obviously I've been and uh, spent some time as a missionary, they don't necessarily always do their baptisms in their church. A lot of them don't have baptismals. So they go to the local river or the local lake. Um, most of them prefer to go to the river because down on the beach at the river, people from all over the city are down there partying and having a good time. So they send up a tent And they start having music and prayer and stuff on the beach, on the riverbank, attracting attention, letting people know that there's some Christian stuff going on over there. And then the tent is for people to change clothes in. And they come out in their robes, and the pastor meets them out in the water, and they're baptized. And it's a public statement 
that I am now a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ. And uh, sometimes that baptism is simply a test to see if you're ready to commit in spite of the persecution that might come along. Saul now is experiencing a new fellowship. In verse 19 it says, And taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. After having something to eat and getting his strength back, Paul, remember, he fasted for three days after his conversion. But he spent time with Jesus' disciples in Damascus, which was a sign of, of spiritual regeneration. He wanted to be with other believers. Hopefully that's part of why you're here today. <laughs> There's a, a, a desire to be with other believers. But wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall during some of those conversations when Saul first sat down with the church at Damascus? Now this is not what we expected when you got to town. They didn't expect to be sharing communion, if you will, with Saul. He's expressing now a new faith in verses 20 to 22. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. Saul found himself not only with a new friend and a new family and a new fellowship, but found himself quickly expressing his new faith. He immediately started going to the synagogues declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. And some of those synagogues hadn't even heard yet of his conversion before they allowed him to come in and speak to them. So the message he gave was not what they were expecting to hear. It didn't take long for them to figure out that this Saul who had arrived in Damascus, was not the same Saul who left Jerusalem. How did he know what to say? He'd only been a believer for a few days. Well, I'm sure that, first of all, Saul had already heard much, if not all, of the testimonies of the apostles in Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin when they were on trial. And now suddenly, those testimonies were crystal clear to Saul. On top of that, Saul knew the Old Testament. He, he knew it very intimately. He was a Jewish scholar. He knew the scriptures. And now, he knew what they meant. He knew that Christ, Jesus, was the fulfillment of those scriptures and the prophecies of the Old Testament. And Saul was known on his own to be intellectually brilliant and in, as an individual. And clearly he demonstrated in his writings that he was quite competent in connecting the dots between the Old Testament he knew and the Messiah Jesus who had come. Paul's life was spent in a, in a city, Tarsus. There was a great university there. He spent time with a lot of great scholars. He studied at the knee of Gamaliel, who we, we studied or talked about a little earlier in the book of Acts, one of the great rabbi teachers back in Jerusalem. Now you take all that knowledge and add to it, he now has the Holy Spirit. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews 
who lived in Damascus by proving intellectually (laughs) from Scripture that Jesus was the Christ. As you might expect, Saul's preaching caused more than just a little bit of confusion among the Damascus Jews. Saul was now proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. In verse 22, Luke says Saul's preaching confounded the Jews. And confounded is a word that means to stir up trouble or confusion. And the Jews were totally confused, totally troubled, and totally stirred up by the preaching of this former Pharisee. Saul's new preaching then resulted in his engaging in a new fight. Now here's a shocker for you. Saul's new message attracted opposition from the Jewish community in Damascus. Now haven't we already talked about how anywhere the gospel is, it will encounter opposition? Look at verses 23 and 24. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. (laughs) These guys are starting to show some patterns here, aren't they? (laughs) You start attracting attention about Jesus, you're a marked man. The plot to kill Saul, Luke says that when many days had passed, the Jews had hatched a plan to kill Saul. Likely when Saul went to Arabia after three years, which he mentions in Galatians 1, verses 15 to 18. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained there with him 15 days. We don't know where exactly in Arabia Saul went or how he made his living there or anything else. What we know is that the Lord isolated him from the company of men and sent him to the desert, apparently to instruct him. Now, most believe that it was during this isolation period that the Lord taught Saul what we now read in Paul's epistles. And Saul likely took his Old Testament scrolls with him into the desert, but he returned to Damascus with the New Testament epistles in his heart. When he went back to Damascus, his preaching was even more powerful than it had been before. And the Jewish leadership wanted him gone even more intensely. But there was a plan that saved Saul. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 32 and 33, Paul reported this. He said, In Damascus, the governor, under Aretas the king, was guarding the city of Damascus with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Saul's preaching created so much turmoil in Damascus that the only way to be rid of that turmoil was to be rid of him. So Saul had to flee the city with the help of his friends. They lowered him outside the wall in a basket under the cover of darkness. And from there Saul went back to Jerusalem. And for the first time he visited with the disciples there. 
and the leaders of the church and expressed another new fellowship there, or experienced one. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. This is three years later now. They were still afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. The response of the church to Saul was pretty predictable. Verse 26 tells us they were afraid. They didn't believe that he had truly been converted to faith. I'm sure they probably figured it was just a scheme that he had to infiltrate the church so he could imprison the whole lot of them at the same time. What he needed was an advocate. And he found one in good old Barnabas. (laughs) We've talked about Barnabas before, the encourager, the helper, the servant Barnabas. In verse 27, we see Barnabas personally presented him to the apostles and confirmed his conversion experience. He kind of became Saul's sponsor, if you will, to the church. And without that sponsorship, it might have been that he would never be accepted there. But it seems whenever we find Barnabas in the New Testament, he's helping someone. It's no surprise that, remember back in Acts chapter 4, the apostles kind of changed his name from Joseph to Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement. But then even as he extricated himself from danger in Damascus, Paul again found his life threatened, and he had to escape a new foe. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Sent him off back to his hometown. Now for more details, we can look to Paul's own testimony in Acts again, chapter 22, verses 17 to 21. He said, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. (laughs) Saul's telling the Lord, I understand why they're mad. They don't believe. And the Lord said to, to Paul, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So his brothers, again, help him escape with his life. This time again to the safety of his hometown in Tarsus. And there he kind of disappears from the book of Acts until chapter 13, where in verse 9, he begins to be referred to as Paul, now no longer Saul. Acts chapter 13. Well, that's great. So what? Notice here, Saul's times of isolation and seclusion seem to have gotten a little longer each time. First, three days in Damascus, blinded after his conversion and his experience on the Damascus Road. Then for three years he went off to Arabia, isolated from church life. And now 
He's been sent back to Tarsus for what most people believe was about a seven-year exile until he is summoned by Barnabas again in Acts chapter 11 to come to Antioch. As we read through this chapter, this book, it's, it's not hard for us to, to think that Paul was converted and immediately he went back, he started writing and started preaching and pinning those epistles and planting churches. But it didn't work out that way. Three separate times, God set Saul apart to give him information, to give him the knowledge and to give him some experience that he was going to need as an apostle. Why, why is that important for me to bring up to you this morning? I want to encourage you, be patient. Pastor, I'm 80 years old, 70 years old, 90 years old, 60 years old. I've been patient. Well, if you haven't figured out what God wants you to do, I'm just going to tell you, be patient. Because he'll tell you when he's ready. Let God do that deep work in your life that's necessary for you to become a useful tool in his toolbox. That's something I'd like you to take out of here with you today. Think of yourself as a tool in God's toolbox. Some of you are hammers. <laughs> right, ladies? <laughs> yeah. Some of you are screwdrivers. And some of you are pliers. But all of you are a tool in God's toolbox. And if you don't believe he's using you for whatever purpose he's created you as a believer, it's just because he's not done preparing you. If you've been a believer for any length of time, I want you to just spend a, a few seconds here and think back over your life, where you've been, how you got there, things that have happened to you, good or bad, and see how that's helped you to be who and where you are right now. And let me just tell you that if you're not doing God's work right now, get ready because it's a coming. He's created you. He's gifted everyone that he's called to himself for a purpose. Last week we talked about kicking against those goads. Remember what a goad was? pole with a sharp point on the end of it to get a, an oxen or something like that moving a little faster or moving at all. <laughs> and then sometimes the oxen would kick back at the goads and it would just cause that point to go a little deeper, a little more painful. Don't kick against the goads. <laughs> it takes a lot of time, a lot of patience, and even a lot of pressure to turn a lump of coal into a diamond. It takes a lot of time, a lot of preparation, a lot of pressure to sometimes turn a crusty old non-believer into a tool that's useful in God's toolbox. 
if he could take a, a lump of coal like Saul and turn him into Paul, he can do the same for everyone in this room. Not only can he, you can expect that he will. If we let him, God will do that work in us. The same work he did with that lump of coal from Tarsus. Because in the hands of God, each one of us is a thing of beauty. Would you pray with me? Lord, I guess I, if I went back and listened, I suppose every time I, I start to pray, I say thank you. And I guess the reason for that is because I am grateful. And first of all, I'm grateful that you have called me out of non-belief and unbelief to be a child of God. I'm grateful for your word that you have given to us, that we can learn about you, we can study who you are and what you are in, in writing, as well as by experience in life. And Lord, I am grateful that you are a patient God. Even as we've been studying in our Sunday school time, going through the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus, and we see how many times we have tried your patience as a people, and yet you've patiently taken your time, reminded us of who you are. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I thank you for your desire to use me. I thank you for your desire to use all of your people. And I know our primary call is to take your gospel throughout the world, starting in our own little neighborhood here, our own little community, in our own state, but to take it all over the world. What a great call that is. I, I just can't tell you how much I have enjoyed the journey of seeing the different ways that you can use even a lump of coal like me. So, Lord, I pray for all of those who are out here this morning, many of whom may be sitting there wondering exactly what it is you've called them to do. Well, I would just suggest that maybe they need to spend some time even today in prayer asking you to show them what it is. It may not be a great work like those of Paul, Writings that have lasted through eons and will continue to last till the end of time here on this planet. It may be simply being nice to a child, nice to a neighbor, or helping somebody out along the road you don't even know. There are all kinds of ways that we do your work. Lord, help us to just be servants, willing and open to do what you have called us to do, to represent you, to be your ambassadors to a fallen world, to be your eyes, your ears, and your mouth to those who have ears and will hear. We thank you for all of that. We thank you for your patience and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Steve, for that encouragement to us.